Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Last time, we looked at the three worlds that every prayer lives in, and indeed every passage of Scripture lives in. And so in this chapter, we're going to explore that first world or level and how to apply it. This approach, the behind the text, is an author-centered approach. That is, we are trying to find out as much as we can about the author's context. We don't need to know who the author is, although that might give us some clues as to the context. We want to examine the language, the social world, the history, the culture, and so on. The more we know, the better we can read and understand the prayer. Many years ago, I was walking along a cliff above a beach, and I found a letter among some boulders. I pulled it out from a crevice and scanned the seven or eight pages. The writer was upset with someone, maybe more than one person, it wasn't clear. The author mentioned some specifics, but it was mostly reactions and thoughts based on an event or events that the author and the recipient both knew about. Based on what was said, I could make some guesses about the people, the relationship, and the events. But without more context, I could not fully understand it. Of course, I could have merely interpreted the letter based on my own reactions to the words and my own life experience, but I might be missing some crucial information of context that could utterly change my understanding about some of the things said. What if this was a teenager? What if it was a grandmother? What if it was not left there by the recipient, but by the author who decided not to send it? What if it was fiction, made up by someone who was writing a story, or an attempt to write someone else's story, or a school project, to write a letter that a character in a film might have written. With biblical texts, it can be even more difficult than something written in my own time, language, and culture. In the prayers of the Bible, an ancient writer was writing in another language from ours, another culture, and a time different. We can call that maybe the cultural filter. And so, as I read the prayer, I am doing so through my language and a translation, through my culture and my time. This is my cultural filter. To do a better job of understanding those filters, I need to take both of those into account. And so exploring behind the text deals with the first filter, the one that belongs to the author, the original author. The primary elements of this filter are language, culture, and history. Let's examine the language distance by looking at the following passage from the first mention of prayer in the Bible. Genesis 4, verse 26. At that time, people began to invoke the name of the Lord. When you read the word Lord, what comes to mind? A synonym for God? If so, what image comes to mind? Or perhaps you think of Jesus, who is often called Lord in the New Testament, but then realize that this must be God in this passage since it was written before the time of Jesus. Maybe you think of it as a title for God, like someone might address a king of a country or a judge of a court in the United Kingdom. There are many words in Hebrew that are translated as Lord in English. A common one is Adonai, which means Lord, Sir, or Master. It can be used to address people in authority, but it is also used as a formal title for God. Another word, not as common, is El or Elohim, which is merely a general word that means God, whether the God of Israel or some pagan God. And often in the Bible, El is used with another word to make it a title such as El Shaddai, which means God Almighty, or El Elyon, which means God Most High. The word used here is neither of those. 
Here, it is the translation of a Hebrew word rendered into English as Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. It is a strange word in Hebrew and is unpronounceable in the way it has come down to us in the Hebrew biblical texts. In Exodus 6-2, Moses experienced the presence of God through a burning bush. When Moses asked who he was, God tells him he's the one who appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai. Then he tells Moses that he only made himself known to them in part, but now he would reveal his true name to Moses, and he uses this strange word, which we now translate as Yahweh. The word is probably a form of the Hebrew verb to be, which is why some Bibles translate it as I am. A better translation, though more cumbersome, is I will be what I will be. It is not a general word of description or a title. Instead, God says it's his actual name. The writer who wrote Genesis wanted to make it clear just who this God was. Not some distance God, not some uncaring God, but the God Yahweh himself, who has revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush and can do anything he wants. That would be the cultural filter of the people who read that passage for the first time. Quite different from ours. But knowing that information about language can help us read that passage better. The people living in Egypt, suffering in slavery, know who they are praying for and that he loves them. The social world or culture that existed when a prayer was first written also gives us some important clues to its meaning. We should not really say the culture of the Old Testament or the New Testament culture or biblical times, because like today, there were many subcultures. We might speak of American culture, but there are other subcultures at play that might affect our understanding of something. There's New England culture, there's Southern culture, there's California culture. Even in smaller areas, such as England, we might need to distinguish between the London metropolitan area, Wales, or Cornwall. Let's look at two mentions of prayer in Deuteronomy 26. I have removed the sacred portion from the house, and I have given it to the Levites, the resident aliens, the orphans, and the widows, in accordance with your entire commandment that you commanded me. I have neither transgressed nor forgotten any of your commandments. I have not eaten of it while in mourning. I have not removed any of it while I was unclean, and I have not offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the Lord my God, doing just as you commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven. Bless your people Israel and the ground you have given us as you swore to our ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. There are a lot of phrases in this section that might make little sense to us. Sacred portion. Not eaten of it while mourning. While unclean. I haven't offered any of it to the dead. If we don't do any background study behind the text, we may be left to misread or, more likely, to just ignore them because they don't make any sense to us. How would an understanding of this prayer begin? First, we must remind ourselves that the people who wrote and lived in these stories belonged to a pre-industrial age. Their culture was organized around agriculture, not like ours. It is not surprising that many of the ceremonies, prayers, and religious instructions revolve around the agricultural year. Had the Bible been written in the 20th century, or the 21st century, the prayers would have had a different cycle and setting, we could almost be sure. This passage concerns offering what's called first fruits to God, that is, the portion of the first harvest of the year. After the bleakness of the winter, where the people ate mostly food they had stored and preserved from the previous year, the crops were planted and they grew. When the first of the fruits and vegetables were ready, it was only right to dedicate some of the new fresh produce to God. 
Most of us have little experience in an agrarian culture. We can buy almost any kind of produce all year round, only by visiting our grocery store or even having it delivered to us. But those ancient people worked hard to prepare the soil, plant seeds, tend the crops, and examine the first crop when it was ready to know how the rest of the season was going to unfold. From a seed comes food and drink that sustains life, provides meals for social occasions, and provides part of the economy for buying and selling that drove that society. So the first harvest was the time to take some of that produce and give it to the priests for sacrifice, to the poor and to the orphans and the widows as a way of thanking God for a new agricultural season. They sacrificed quite a bit of what they had, seeing it as giving back to God with thanksgiving and gratitude. Most of us in our day do not have this experience, but the example still applies. And in studying such prayers, we ask how we could offer first fruits to God that does not involve agricultural products, but something from our own lives and our culture. The history behind any prayer passage could also be a key to understanding. For example, in Second Chronicles 14, verses 14 through 15, we read this. They took an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with horns. All Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn with all their hearts and had sought him with a whole desire, and he was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest all around. With no background study in the history, we may not even realize that the oath taken here is actually a prayer vow, a vow that makes a promise to God. We might also wonder why all the excessive celebration. But the historical context of the passage opens it all up for us. King Asa had become ruler of the southern kingdom called Judah in Israel. His father, Abijah, had been a terrible king who worshipped other gods and brought many pagan practices to Israel. But his son, carried out religious reforms when he took the throne. God sent the prophet Azariah to tell Asa that God was with him and that Judah had been unfaithful for a long time and had been punished for it. But now that Asa was returning Judah to faithfulness, God would bless him and the people. This renewed Asa's desire, and he had all the idols from the land removed, repaired the altar at the temple, and then gathered the people together for a covenant renewal ceremony. The prayer above was offered after many sacrifices. The nation was pledging themselves to God and offered a vow, an oath, that they would devote themselves utterly to God. With an understanding of the history behind this prayer, the power of renewal and rededication explains the profound meaning of this prayer, just like a prayer we might offer after we've been unfaithful for a long time. Other crucial events in history lie behind a lot of the words of the prayer in the Bible. The delivery from Egypt, led by Moses, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the exile of the people to Babylon were two of the most crucial events in the history of the Jews. Many later passages and prayers refer back to those events. The Gospel of Matthew even presents Jesus as a new Moses who gives commands from a mountain and will lead his people to a new promised land. Another crucial event in the period was the destruction of the Jewish temple by the Roman army in 70 AD and this was known as the Second Temple, which had been rebuilt by King Herod. Some New Testament documents were written before that event, and some were written after. In Mark, Jesus foretells the destruction of the Temple. Some later letters refer to it symbolically. Knowing as much as we can about that event, its precursors, and the aftermath, can help us dig deeper into the meaning and purpose of the passages and books we study.
So going behind the text allows us to dig deeper into any passage or a book. While the primary message of any prayer might be clear, by exploring its context, we can uncover further details and insights that we might otherwise miss. Together with the two other methods, this approach goes a long way towards helping us enrich our prayers. Thank you for listening. See the notes accompanying this podcast for more information. Learn more about the Praying Through the Bible Project on our website, prayingthroughthebible.com. That's T-H-R-U. If you are a subscriber, thank you. If not, please consider becoming one. Feel free to get in touch through the comments or on our website. Until next time, blessings on all of you.